Um, this morning from Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we exist through Him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat it, nor the better if we do eat. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple... Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I might not cause my brother to stumble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again just ask that you would minister to us, that we would be strengthened in our faith, encouraged in our walks with you, that our hearts, Lord, would be drawn to Jesus, and that he would be exalted in each of us. As a body, God, that we would walk together in love, serving one another, considering others more highly than ourselves, and in that, too, that Jesus would be seen and, and that the light of his presence and glory would be manifest through us individually and corporately as a body. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we finished chapter 7, finally. Um, great chapter, but difficult. And now um, Paul is beginning um, a long section on Christian liberty. Chapters 8, 9, and 10. Not to be outdone by a longer section on spiritual gifts that will be coming up in chapters 12, 13, and 14. So just judging by the proportion, the amount of space that Paul's giving to topics, this is a very important topic to Paul. It's not the only place that he talks about Christian liberty. He devotes an entire chapter to it in Romans as well. But it is a difficult one, and even after saying so much... We still have a lot of questions here about what is true Christian liberty and how it is to be expressed. Paul has really no problem with their theological reasoning, um, and he is going to greatly emphasize in this chapter knowledge. Ten times in these 13 verses, he he uses the word know. And so these people are are very focused on the knowledge that they have concerning their Christian liberty. Next chapter, he's going to talk about rights. 
And those are the two things that Christians, when it comes to Christian liberty, are often talking about what we know is our liberty and what our rights are. So if you're focused on what you know and your rights, you're going to maybe not like these two chapters. Very important chapters, and I wish um, it settled everything, but Paul, God, has not intended to address specifically every issue of Christian liberty, and, but he has given us the guidelines and the parameters to operate um, within. When I was um, in seminary, I, I, during one summer break, I went to Arkansas and lived with my brother and took a job with two carpenters who were building a spec house. And they graciously hired me and, and gave me a summer employment so that I could go back to school in the fall. I really appreciated that. Um, I, in looking back over that summer and, and the amount of work I did and, and, and the great help I was to those guys, um, if I were to grade myself from a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being useless and 10 being phenomenal, I would put myself maybe at a 5. Those men would put me somewhere south of 0. Um, <laughs> I remember more than once they said to me, what do you do in seminary? And, and I said, well, I do a lot of reading. And they go, we're not so sure. Because so, we think maybe you're just eating those books. And you're not really reading those books. Because whatever you're reading, it is having no practical impact upon your life as a carpenter. So um, <laughs> don't think this is God's calling for you. And they gave me a lot of grief that summer. And I, I just, and I, I, they think I'm eating books? <laughs> because they saw no practical um, application. Well, I don't know. There's a lot of practical application between studying soteriology and building a house. But anyway, the idea was there, and, and we all share it, that knowledge ought to impact life. Um, Ian Thomas, the founder of Torchbearers, one time said, um, our Torchbearer Bible schools are not about filling people's notebooks, but they're about changing lives. And that's the way it should be. Truth should impact our lives, should shape our lives, conform us to Christ. And the more we know, the more like Christ we ought to be. Unfortunately, that is not always the case. So Paul starts out this chapter, he says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, specifically the food, the meat that has been sacrificed to idols. So it's kind of nice that the scripture is talking about a subject here that none of us will probably ever encounter. I know I've never had to face, you know, whether or not to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Probably most of us will never have to face that. But obviously, again, this deals with more than that. But we're going to look at it first in its context. Concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that all have knowledge. You can, and I want you to hear the, the irony here, the sarcasm in Paul as he, as he writes these. Every time he writes the word knowledge, think sarcasm, okay? We know that we all have knowledge. Now, that's an important thing here too because this Christianity, he's kinda, he just blows by this and we, we can read it too quickly. But I've said before, one of the unique things about the Christian faith is that all have the same knowledge. There, is no, there are no secrets 
There is no special class of people that when you enter that class, you're kind of brought into the inner sanctum and you get to know things that you couldn't have known unless you're a part of that class of people. That's not the way Christianity works. There's no darkness. There's no secret. There, there is no higher level. We, as Martin Luther used to say, Christ did not eliminate the, the um, did not come and, and just eliminate the laity. He eliminated, when he said he made us all priests, the priesthood. So we are all clergy now. So there's not one people that are below or above another. We all have access to the same knowledge. But knowledge makes arrogant. Left to itself, knowledge makes arrogant. It just swells up. But love edifies. And how often we see that to be the case. I know one time, you know, sometimes we just, we, we, it, it, un, unintentionally, we can just be very sure about something. Because, but because we all are so self-focused, what we believe and what we're sure of can be absolutely true, but we're not thinking about how it impacts other people. I was rightly, um, really, really scolded one time many years ago. Never made that mistake twice. Um, but I, in jest, talked about how easy it was for, for Patsy to get pregnant. And never occurred to me um, how that would be hurtful to someone, to a woman who has had difficulty getting pregnant. And I had a very harsh letter given to me. And I'm thankful for it. Yeah, I, I, it, it helped me to see that even though it's true, <laughs> it was easy for us, I need to be thinking of how that truth impacts other people. It's hard for us to be thinking about others because we're so self-absorbed. And so Paul is going there with this. What you know, what you believe is true. But that's not the main thing. How is this impacting, how is this truth that you're living impacting other people? Because knowledge by itself makes arrogant. Love edifies. And the knowledge that we have ought to culminate in a love for others that is considerate of them and builds them up. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. Anything that you know really well? We've got a few doctors that come to church here, lawyers. Um, Jim's a physicist. And I would think, man, these guys are experts in their field. But when you talk to any one of them, they would say, we do not begin to know everything. In fact, in our elders' meetings, Jack's a doctor and Jim's a physicist. Many times we go, there is so much nobody knows about medicine and the body. So much people do not know about this world and how it functions. Coming from, in my perspective, experts in those fields. Real knowledge ought to lead to real humility. It shows us how much we really, really do not know. True knowledge, a complete knowledge, is knowing that there is so much more that we don't know. It's knowing that knowledge is not enough for living well. 
think about the different ministries that have focused on, on communicating principles to people. And one ministry used to put out a big, thick binder, three-ring binder, two or three inches thick, on principles of the Christian life. And man, you can have all those principles memorized, and it, and it has no impact on how you live. You can memorize the entire Bible, and it have no impact upon how you live. It's not enough just to know. True knowledge is knowing that knowledge is not the goal, but life and, and how we live this life and whether Christ is being seen in and through us. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Of all the knowledge you could know, nothing compares with being known. Loving God and being known by him. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus sent out his disciples and they were casting out demons and performing healings and other miracles and they came back just all excited. And Jesus said, what you should be rejoicing in is that your names are written in heaven, that you are known by God. What knowledge could we have that could begin to come close to being known by God? God knows you, and he loves you, and that ought to greatly impact our lives. So verse 4, therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know, hear the sarcasm, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one good theology. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father. And see, this is good theology here. You hear what Paul's saying? Yeah, there's people worship all kinds of deities. The Hindus have hundreds of millions of deities. But we know there's one God one God. So all these others are not gods. They are to those people, but in actual fact, they are not gods. There's one God. And that one God is the Father, and from whom are all things. He is the source of everything. So there, and so all these hundreds of millions of gods that the Hindus may have, they, are, they originate nothing except confusion and darkness. You think, where, where does the rain come from? It's not from one of their gods. It comes from God. Any th good thing that you can imagine, anything that you can think of that is good, comes from God. He is the originator, the source of all that is good. From him are all things. And we exist for him. He is the goal. He is the source, and he is the goal. If you knew nothing else about life, that would be enough. God is the source, and God is the goal. And then, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, 
meaning he is the agency, and we exist through him. God is the source, God is the goal, and Jesus Christ is the means. That is, in a nutshell, what life is about. And if you know that, you're doing pretty well. God is the source, God is the goal, and Jesus Christ is the means for living this life. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, here's the thing. You can see where Paul's going with this. There, there is one God, so idolatry is actually meaningless in the, in, the, in the big scheme of things of what's really, really true. Idolatry is nothing. It is false. It is a lie. We don't have to be concerned about it. But not all people understand that. Not even all Christians get it. And if they see you going into an idol's temple and eating food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. This is written to the person who has the freedom to eat, verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. See, the weak brother would have turned that around and said, we are worse if we eat it and better if we don't. So Paul's addressing the strong brother here who is able to eat this food. And he says, we are, we are neither the worse if we do not eat. It won't make you worse not to eat it. And we're not better if we do eat it. But take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And this is what he means. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Now, I got to unpack this a little bit. If somebody sees you who has the freedom because of your knowledge that God is the only God going into an idol's temple and eating food, somebody who doesn't share that knowledge, who doesn't share that liberty, is going to be tempted to do the same thing you're tempted. Their conscience is weak. It's going to be defiled. Their conscience is weak. They will, they will be strengthened. And what's wrong with having a strengthened conscience? But it's, it's, not, it's probably not the best translation for that word. Their conscience is going to be encouraged, would be a better word, to do something that their conscience doesn't really give them the freedom to do. And that is to eat food that they really, in their conscience, they know they don't have that freedom, but they're being encouraged by you to do it. And when, somebody is, when you encourage somebody to violate their conscience and they follow through with that, you ruin that person. You sin against that person. A couple things here. One, conscience. Students have 
been thinking about this at his hill a little bit because I had him do a, a concordance study on conscience. And uh, we talked about it a little bit in our staff meeting. The thing about conscience, it is a gift from God and it distinguishes us from animals. There's no evolutionary explanation for why a person has a conscience. It makes no sense in terms of evolution. Because conscience would tell you, just because a person's weaker than you, you don't have the right to take advantage of them. But evolution says they're survival of the fittest. You do have the right to take advantage of others because you're stronger than they are. Power goes to the strong. Conscience says, no, I don't have the right to take advantage of someone, abuse someone, just because I have power over them. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, all this discussion in the media constantly about the strong people, men, having power over women and taking advantage of them and how wrong that is. And those same people are evolutionists. Makes no sense. Evolution says the, the power is right. It's a survival of the fittest. Conscience tells us that isn't right. But here's the thing. Conscience is such a gift from God. But it has limitations. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, I think it's verse 16, he says, the thoughts of conscience lead us either to, to um, be um, excused or to be condemned. So basically what it does, it just tells you this is right, this is wrong, and if you do what is wrong, you're condemned. If you do what is right, you're approved. And that's all it can do. And so it has this, this, this innate understanding that wrong deserves to be punished and right deserves to be rewarded. Every person has a conscience. They may not all agree on what right and wrong is, but they all agree. Right deserves to be rewarded, and wrong deserves to be punished. Everybody's in agreement with that. Where does that come from? It comes from God. But what conscience cannot do is when you are wrong, tell you that you're forgiven. See, that's a whole different dimension. Because all conscience can deal with is right and wrong, excused and condemned, nothing more. And so you can be functioning in the truth of conscience, that I deserve hell. I deserve to be punished. And conscience is right. But conscience can't compute. Conscience can't grapple or accept grace, where the grace of God says, your sin has been paid for through Jesus Christ. And conscience goes, it shouldn't be paid for. I should be condemned. You're right, conscience. But you're wrong in that you can't accept grace. And so you can see where truth can be right, and yet truth can be inadequate because it doesn't go far enough. Conscience can't go far enough. It can't comprehend. It can't understand the blood of Christ and the payment of Christ for our sin. So there's a sense in which you have to just accept it by faith because conscience can't, can't rationalize it. It ought to be punished. And so this is where we have to think about our sin has been punished. Our sin has, there has been punishment handed out, and that is in what Jesus Christ did. It's not just God saying, I forgive you, but it's God has paid the penalty in Christ. And now my conscience can go, you mean there's been payment? Yes. And the payment is because of what Jesus did? Yes. But there's payment? Yes. And see, conscience can accept that. 
But here's the thing. Once you have defiled your conscience, once you have seared your conscience, once you have violated your conscience, you can't cleanse it. It's done. And so lots of people try to, to, to assuage their conscience by doing good works. And so they try to, so the conscience is condemning and they go, I gotta be better, I gotta be better, I gotta do more, I gotta do more. They go to church and they give money and they, and they volunteer. And, and all of this is to try to, to, to deal with the conscience that condemns them. And it's hopeless. Because the only thing that can cleanse conscience, Hebrews says, is the blood of Jesus Christ. The only thing. And so we have to, again, we recognize that I cannot take away my own sin. But that can only happen, my sin can only be paid for through Jesus Christ. And the blood of Christ, His atonement, pays for my sin and thereby cleanses my conscience. So conscience is a big deal. And to, to violate a person's conscience, to, to willfully lead another person to do what they, what they do not have the liberty in their conscience to do, is to sin against them. And to sin against Christ, who died for them. So it's a very, very serious thing here that Paul's talking about. Theoretically, theologically, yes, you may have the liberty. But if the exercise of your liberty would cause someone else to violate their conscience, it is such a big deal. They have been defiled. They have been caused to stumble. They have been ruined. They have been sinned against. And Christ has been sinned against. Take care of what your liberty is. Very simple illustration I came across. You know, our laws say, in most instances, when you're at a red light, you can turn right on a red. That's your right. That's your liberty. But what should you do before you turn right? See if somebody else is coming. Right? You can't just go through because it's your right. You've got to see how that decision is going to impact somebody else. You may have the liberty and the right, but look to the left. How is that decision impacting, going to impact somebody else? And if you can clearly see this is going to harm someone else, then you don't make that decision. You think of the other person and consider them and let them have their way. There's another problem here. I want you to go back to Acts chapter 15. These passages that I'm going to look at now are what makes this whole subject of meat sacrificed to idols really difficult. And again, I'm thankful that it's not what we directly have to deal with today, but it does have application. Acts chapter 15 this is the Jerusalem Council. Paul has gone to, back to Jerusalem. He's been ministering for some time. There's been lots of controversy surrounding his ministry on, on what he should teach the new Gentile converts to do. Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to whatever? And so, so the Jerusalem Council has now issued its 
response. So Acts chapter 15, verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you, Gentile Christians, no greater burden than these essentials. Number one, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols. What is Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 8? Seems to be he's saying you can eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. You can abstain from, you must abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. Okay. That seems to be pretty clear. You can't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. And then also in Acts chapter 20, verse 25. And now behold, I know that you, you all, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, well, that's not it. How did I miss that? Don't worry about it. It's in there somewhere, and it's the same references in Acts 15. Go over with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, two verses here, verse 14 and verse 20. Verse 14, Jesus is speaking to the church of Pergamum. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. I have this against you. You're eating things sacrificing to idols, and you're also committing acts of immorality. Verse 20, the church in Thyatira. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. These are difficult passages in light of what Paul's saying. They're, you know, all we had was Acts 15 and the two passages there in Revelation. We'd go, you can't eat things sacrificed to idols. It's very clear. And along comes Paul. And he seems to be saying, the idols are nothing. You can eat the food. Okay, now, go back to 1 Corinthians, this time chapter 10. In verse 14. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. This is the same guy who just said idolatry is nothing. There are no other gods. There's just one God. Now he's saying... Flee idolatry, for I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices shares in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or an idol is anything? No. So the idolatry is nothing, is nothing. The thing sacrificed the idol is nothing, but no, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Chapter 8, he's going, you can eat the food. In chapter 10, he's going, what are you doing? This is hard. So he goes, when you go into that idol, temple, that, that place of demonic 
worship, you, they are worshiping demons. It's not just a piece of wood. It's not just a piece of stone. It is a demon that's being worshipped. And I don't want you to be a partaker in the demonic. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't do these things. You can't go to the temple. You can't eat those meals. Verse 23, all things are lawful. That's knowledge. You see, I know all things are lawful. I know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know all my sin has been paid for. I know that I'm a new creature in Christ. I know these things. Amen. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And he's not talking about necessarily what's profitable for you, but what's profitable for others. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that's sold in the market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. So again, so what there's been sacrificed to an idol? But you go to the marketplace, apparently, you see, it wasn't, it wasn't designated. Meat sacrificed to idol, meat that was not sacrificed to idol. You know, we got that at HUB, right? We've got organic meat, non-organic meat, right? And so, no connection. And so, <laughs> there, there wasn't that kind of designation in their marketplace. It was just meat. So what do you do? Don't ask, Paul's saying. You got a conscience about eating meat sacrificed to idols? Real simple solution. Don't ask if it was sacrificed to idols. Just buy it. But I can kind of figure it out. Well, stop thinking and just enjoy the meat. What if I go to somebody else's house and they serve me meat? Don't ask. Just eat the meat. And he says that. So he says, if one of, you, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if you should say to you, if, he should, if someone should say to you, this meat has been sacrificed to idols, don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's conscience, because we're not just thinking about ourselves. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? It's not a simple thing. But at the very minimum, I think it's clear, Paul's very forceful here, you've got no business going into those temples and eating that food in that context. In the privacy of your home, Okay, so when Jesus says, I have this against you, you are eating things sacrificed to idols, and in both references, he also makes, makes reference to sexual immorality, it would seem that Jesus is probably talking about the same thing Paul's talking about in chapter 2, <coughs> going into those temples where it's not just a sitting down and having food. They are worshiping demons, and they are practicing sexual immorality in that context, and a Christian has no business being there. Does he have the liberty? Yes. Theologically, yes. But practically, in terms of community, in terms of the witness of Jesus Christ, does he have that liberty? No. Because his liberty is bound, is restricted by the influence that he's having upon others and the witness that he is giving of Jesus Christ. 
We are so much centered on trying to get away with whatever we can get away with. Whatever makes us happy with little to no thought about anybody else. I wonder sometimes if we would just honestly and humbly ask the people around us, what do you genuinely think about what I'm doing? Is it helping you or hurting you in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? I think we'd be surprised at what we hear. Christians are now, you know, it's always changing. And I think that's why God hasn't addressed every issue of Christian liberty, because it's always changing. But Christians now, I'm hearing saying, where in the Bible does it tell me that I can't use profanity? And pastors are cussing a blue streak. Some of them even from the pulpit. And I'm going, really? You really need to ask that question? Does your language edify? Does profanity edify? The answer to that is very clear. No. And it's not edifying, even if you have the liberty. You can't do it because it doesn't edify. End of conversation. I told you I asked men years ago when I was working in the gravel pit, making asphalt, and they asked me why I didn't um, smoke and drink. And, um, and I had had the most amazing um, five or six months working with those guys, where virtually every day they were asking me questions about my faith. I didn't have to look for opportunity. They were pulling it out of me. And I remember the first conversation they had with me. They said, what do you think about this? And I go, you don't want to know. And I go, oh, we do. And I said, trust me, you don't want to know what I think about this. And, and I was, because I was afraid of their response, honestly. They're going to hate me and, you know, make my life difficult. And so they pulled it out of me and I said, well, I just, I'm a Christian and this is not, not, not true of Christ and I love Jesus. And, and, I, and, and so they, wow, man, we've never heard anything like that before. But one day they said, why don't you smoke and drink with us? And I said to them, you tell me. Because there's nothing in the Bible that says I can't smoke and drink. It says I can't destroy my body. It says I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't be mastered by anything. But where in the Bible that says I can't have a cigarette once in a while? Or light up a cigar or something? It's not in the Bible. Have a beer on occasion? It's not in the Bible. It would seem, not just seem, the Bible would give me the liberty to do those things. But I asked those men, you tell me. If I were to sit here with a beer in one hand and a cigarette in the others, telling you guys about Jesus, and I didn't even have to finish the question. They said, we wouldn't listen to a word you had to say. And I said, and there's your answer. It's not about my liberty. It's about you guys. And so they're not not right in condemning me for something I would have the freedom to do. They're wrong. But that's not the issue. And my job is not to educate them. My job is to live within and to do everything I can to see them come to Christ and to put no obstacle to that happening because I love them and I want to see them come to faith in Jesus. If someone sees you, verse 10, 
who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Love edifies. Knowledge puffs up. Are we committed to edifying others or just having our own way? See, this is the message of the cross. Remember how Paul started out 1 Corinthians? He says, I do not, we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ in Him crucified. And that's not just theology. That is practical living. That we don't just proclaim Jesus is first, but we live in such a way that Jesus is first and others come ahead of us. And we willingly forego our liberties for the sake of others. And we count it joy to do so because we're motivated by love. Christians are not to boast in knowing, but to rejoice in being known by God. It is true that idols are nothing, but that doesn't mean that God is okay with idolatry and all that is associated with it. Their theology was correct, but their practice was wrong. No liberty should ever be exercised when it acts contrary to love. No liberty of mine should become a spiritual detriment or hindrance to my brother in Christ. If I love my brother, I will gladly forego any liberty which will cause him to stumble. No right should be exercised which is contrary to love. Love always seeks to edify. I want to conclude with just reading a couple things from other writers. This writer, and by the way, this writer, I, I, I had never come across anybody with this perspective, and it really made me stop in my tracks. This writer has the perspective that Scripture absolutely forbids the eating of meat sacrificed idols. And that these people are using their logic and their reason, their knowledge of theology to rationalize and bring them to a position that said something contrary to the clear prohibitions of Scripture. I don't think that's, I don't agree with him on that Scripture saying you categorically could not eat this meat. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, just don't, eat, don't ask questions. And then you can eat it with a clear conscience. But I do like what he's saying about how we can take the clear commands of Scripture and somehow end up setting them aside on the basis of logic and conjecture. We need to be very careful not to trust our own logic and reason as opposed to God's clear commandments. Then he gives an example. Those who hold to infant baptism, for example, reach their conclusions totally by way of analogy and inference. They conclude that parents should baptize their infant children, although there is not one New Testament command to do so, and not one clear example of it being practiced by the early church. Inferences and human logic should never take precedence over divine decrees and commandments. Some of the Corinthian saints were able to set aside the decree of the Jerusalem Council and eat meat offered to idols based upon their reasoning by heaping inference upon inference, 
starting with divine truth and ending in disobedience. Paul instructs us to subordinate our reasoning to divine commands. And then he quotes, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thought raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. One of the things that's hard about Christian liberty, and this passage doesn't get into it as much as the Romans passage does, is the weaker brother. All that Paul's saying here is really oriented toward the stronger brother. But sometimes the weaker brother wants to impose his conscience and his lack of freedom on everybody else around him. This writer says, Paul did not mean that you should always try to please everyone by what you do. He meant that we should be careful that what we are doing does not hinder someone else from coming to know Christ or keeping him from growing in Christ. It should be noted that in this chapter that Paul did not say that a knowledgeable Christian, one who knows his liberty, must abandon his freedom to the ignorant prejudice of a spiritual bigot. The weak brother, as mentioned in, in verse 11, was one who followed the example of another Christian, not one who carped and coerced that knowledgeable Christian into a particular behavioral pattern. You see, many times the weaker brother is just saying, you need to stop this, you need to stop this. He doesn't have the right to be doing that on an issue that is clearly one of liberty. But on the other hand, the stronger brother needs to make sure that he is not encouraging the weaker brother to violate his conscience. It is unlikely that Paul saw this weak brother as permanently shackling the freedom of the knowledgeable Christian. The weak brother was no omnipresent phantom, but an individual who was to be taught so that he could too could enjoy his freedom. It's a hard subject. There are so many areas where Christian liberty comes into play. This is just the first of three chapters that talks on it. But one thing is crystal clear from this chapter. What all, all that we do should be to the glory of Jesus Christ and with other people in mind. There's a humorous story about Charles Spurgeon who used to proudly smoke cigars. And somebody asked him one time, how can you justify smoking cigars? And he happened to have a cigar in his mouth at that moment when the question was asked. And he took it out and blew. And with a smile on his face, he said, I smoke to the glory of God. (laughs) Because Paul says, let all that you do be done to the glory of God. And he says, I smoke to the glory of God. And he was enjoying his liberty. And then one day as he's walking down the streets of London, he came across an advertisement on the sidewalk with his face on it. And it was outside a tobacco shop. And it said, come buy the cigars that, see us, that, that, that Charles Spurgeon smokes. And he stopped smoking cigars that day. Because he realized that his liberty was leading others to violate their conscience. Public figure, and the one that much has been given, much is required. But all of us have people that we're influencing. And I would hope that we would not be foregoing all of our liberty, but that we would understand there is something greater than our liberty. 
and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and the testimony that we are given and that love for others trumps our liberty. No matter what you know to be true, no matter how absolutely correct we might be in our theology and in our knowledge and convictions of our liberty, that is not the end thing. Love is. Love is. Love for others. I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, we do look for you to give clarity and understanding, but it wouldn't, that it would not end with understanding. But we would also, God, by your spirit, convicting and teaching us, directing us into all that is good and true, that we would live in a way that truly honors Jesus and we consider others more highly than ourselves. Where we are the weaker brother, I pray that we would know your grace, God, not to be constantly imposing our convictions and opinions on others. But that we'd be able to live, live freely in Christ in the context that we have to live in without expecting others to live within those same parameters. And where we are stronger, I do pray, God, that our hearts would just be humble and that we would joyfully, in love, know your grace for setting aside the expression of those liberties so that others might be built up and encouraged in their faith. We are a body, and we recognize your word is true, that when we sin against one another, we sin against Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.